Good morning. It's a Thursday. Kale and Company live here on WKXL 1450 in the Capital Region. Also at 1039 FM, 1019 FM in Manchester and beyond. And streaming around the world and around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. This program is presented by... Northeast Delta Dental. Northeast Delta Dental has individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. You can learn more and find your plan at anydelta.com or deltadentalcoversme.com. Joining us here on Kale and Company, and glad to have her back, as always, is Anna Brown, the Director of Research and Analysis for Citizens Count, citizenscount.org, and on Facebook and every platform you can think of. Anna, good morning to you. Good morning, Ken. Anna, the uh, New Hampshire House will uh, have a little bit of a different look with the uh, Republican majority shrinking uh, as a result of the uh, midterm elections. What uh, what impact is that going to have on the, the landscape of the House? Well, it's interesting because this is the closest split we've seen in at least a century for the New Hampshire House. It's 201 Republicans, 198 Democrats, and there's one seat that's going to be decided by a special election next year. And then add to that mix, roughly 30 legislators might be absent on any given voting day. So a really wonderful optimistic view is that there's going to prompt all sorts of bipartisanship and great, you know, deal-making on legislation. We've already seen legislators from both parties coming together to sponsor marijuana legalization, for example. Another darker option is that there's going to be complete gridlock in the House, not a lot getting done, in which case it's really going to fall to the state Senate to make a lot of these important policy decisions. So the uh, next session begins on uh, January the 4th, and uh, we shall see uh, how it all plays out. The uh, state Senate remains uh, in control of Republicans. Jeb Bradley is now the uh, new Senate president, and I guess uh, his, his tie, top priority is, uh, is the budget. Absolutely. Every two years, the state has to come up with a budget, and it's going to be a little interesting this year because so far— the state has been looking at coming with a surplus into next year. They had all that federal money that was coming in that was letting them do one-time expenditures. But Governor Sununu also said to his agency heads over the past few weeks, recession is coming, recession is inevitable, tighten your belt. So <laughs> I am particularly interested to see if Republicans are going to advocate and move forward with additional business taxes. That is something that has come up on and off for Republicans over the past year, or if they're just going to try to keep taxes the same and, and maybe even cut some spending in anticipating that there will be tougher economic times to come. Well, as a new session begins, always the, the budget is the, the top priority, but uh, what are some of the other things that uh, will be on the agenda? I've actually seen a lot of bill requests related to the gas tax, and these bill tax aren't public yet, so I'm doing a little bit of tea leaf reading, but it looks like there's particular interest in trying to get electric vehicles to contribute in some way to the gas tax. Obviously, electric vehicles don't buy gas, but it's a major source of road funding for the state, and I think that especially given high gas prices, as Republicans, even though it would be a new tax or fee, are probably warming up to the idea that, hey, electric vehicles, how can we get them you know, if it's an extra road toll or if it's a extra fee at the time of car registration, some sort of mileage fee, 
something. So I think that that is going to be a debate that has happened in years past, but might get a little more momentum this year. There will also be other familiar debates that I don't think Republicans have enough votes to um, make happen, but the debate will happen. So, for example, right to work. Uh, There's a bill request for right to work. That is an issue that has come up many years in the past. Governor Sununu has championed it in the past, but we've seen it was unable to pass even with larger Republican majorities. So I don't think that that has a good chance. Well, you mentioned uh, gas tax. What what was the last time we had a gas tax uh, hike in the state of New Hampshire? I want to say it was 2014. It was certain. It was under Governor Maggie Hassan. So you know, it has been in office a while. It was quite a while ago. And the other thing about the gas tax that is important to remember is it's not a percentage of gas prices. It's just a fixed amount. So that means it has not gone up, just as inflation has gone up, just as all, as all those other costs have gone up. The cost for you at the pump has not been the New Hampshire gas tax changing. And also the cost for the state to be paving roads, repairing bridges, new projects. Those costs have all gone up, but they're not getting more from the gas tax revenue just because gas prices are up. So that's why I think it's going to be a debate again. Very tricky for Republicans to talk about that, especially when some were advocating for gas tax holiday even. But, it, you know, this, these, are, these are the harsh realities that you're in when you're looking at a state that doesn't have a lot of income sources. You know, that's when they start looking, you know, recession is coming. They're going to, inflation is high. They're going to start looking at these other revenue opportunities. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So what, what, what is the gas tax uh, right now? Oh, gosh, I want to. <laughs> oh, goodness, Ken, I'm sorry. I, it, you know, it's funny because I want to say that it's something like 14 cents a gallon. But okay. now I'm wondering, since I said 2014 was the last year they raised it, yeah. I'd have to go back and double check. OK, well, well no problem. But uh, but, you know, you raise an interesting point, though, with uh, the advent of more electric vehicles on the roads these days. We're going to be getting less and less in gas tax revenue. Over time, this is a consistent problem that we know we're going to face. Right now, there's crazy demand for hybrid vehicles because they get way better gas mileage. Everyone right now is looking for a car that gets better gas mileage. So when you think about that, if you have to buy less gas, that means the state's going to be get less in gas tax revenue. So it is a long-term challenge faced by the Department of Transportation when they're just looking at, all right, well, we, we have to pave roads. <laughs> Even if everybody gets rid of gas completely, we're still going to have to pay roads. So where does that money come from? Now, you can add more road tolls. You can change the car registration fee, or you can change the gas tax. You know, is there a tax? I, I, I probably probably should know this, but is there a tax when people, uh, you know, charge their electric vehicles? Not that I'm aware of, but that's pretty much, you know, at that point you're going into what are the other electricity factors, you know, electricity yeah. costs that we're talking about, which typically any state revenue that would come from that would be going towards other energy-related projects and not nothing to do with roads. Yeah. Um, but a related issue to that is also how can the state pay for increased electric vehicle infrastructure, increased yeah. charging stations, because once again... As more people are using these vehicles, it's a particular concern that we will be able to attract tourists from places like New York or Massachusetts or Connecticut, that they might be coming in electric vehicles, and they're looking at Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, and they're going to say, all right, well, which one has the most charging stations so I can know that I can get far enough and 
get to my ski trip and be able to jet around and not be stressed about that. So that's a sort of even secondary debate from the gas tax that I think is also going to become more of an issue for legislators over time. Because New Hampshire is a little behind other states when it comes to setting up those charging stations. Yeah, I mean, is that uh, totally up to the state, or is that up for you know the uh, you know the hybrid and electric uh, car manufacturers uh, you know to take care of? I well, mean, it, it can yeah, it can be a bit of a combination because yeah. I know that um, the utilities, the our, our electric companies like Eversource and so on, can be working to sort of set up the grid and make sure our infrastructure is ready for those charging stations. It can also be private investment that is building those stations, but then what sort of incentives might they have and what are are the sort of permitting and locations for that? So I would say this is definitely a public-private partnership in in terms of getting those off the ground and getting those on the, well, not only off the ground, but on the ground, (laughs) especially, you know, northern New Hampshire and more remote areas. And uh, and New Hampshire is definitely lagging behind in terms of uh, infrastructure and in terms of, uh, you know, electric car charging stations. We're, we are a little slower than other other states in the region, yes. And, and I think that that's partly because New Hampshire in general is, you know, we're, we're relatively slow to be doing government investment in new projects because, once again, the state has that limited revenue tax base. We don't have an income or sales tax. So it's the state definitely picks and chooses, you know, where it's going to dedicate its funds. Anna Brown is with us. Anna is the uh, Director of Research and Analysis for Citizens Count, citizenscount.org. And uh, we're talking about the uh, start of the new legislative session, which will be on uh, January 4th of 2023. And uh, Anna, one of the uh, big topics uh, will be uh, marijuana, cannabis. Uh, New Hampshire remains the lone state uh, in New England that has yet to pass the Adult legalization of uh, marijuana. Another uh, bill will be introduced in uh, 2023, a bipartisan bill. Where is it going to go? The real test here is going to be, can the House pass a bill that's appealing to Governor Sununu? In the past, there's been, the House has passed marijuana marijuana legalization, and then it's hit roadblocks in the state Senate, which is partly because there are senators who are leery of legalization, but also partly because Governor Sununu has been such a staunch opponent. Changes? Well, Governor Sununu last year indicated he might be open to a liquor store-style model for marijuana legalization. We also have a new crop of state senators this year that includes the architect of one of last year's marijuana legalization proposals. So I definitely think the odds are good this year. The odds are good. All right. Well, Anna, hang with us here for a couple of minutes. We have to take a quick break and back to uh, discuss a lot more here on this Thursday morning. Anna Brown with us, Director of Research and Analysis for Citizens Count, citizenscount.org. You can check them out on Facebook as well. It is Kale and Company live here on WKXL and NH Talk Radio, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. And we will be right back. Welcome back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in Manchester and beyond, streaming around the world and around the clock on NHTalkRadio.com. Anna Brown is our guest, and uh, Anna, the Director of Research and Analysis 
for Citizens Count, citizenscount.org. And Anna said uh, uh, just before the break that there is there is optimism, uh, perhaps a little guarded optimism, that uh, there, there may be some progress in the legal, legalization of cannabis, marijuana, call it what you want. Uh, so you think uh, there, there's a possibility that it could pass this time around? I do think there's a possibility. I will say Governor Sununu has, you know, the first time he opened up was when it came with that state-run model where the state would be operating, like I said, similar to liquor stores, operating these stores. So I'm not so sure that the current proposal that has that bipartisan support in the House, if that would appeal to Sununu, because it's definitely more of that private enterprise that allows home growing and so on. So that, that remains to be seen. So as I mentioned right before the break as well, the Senator Gail Abbas is the one who wrote that bill last year that had state-run model. So I haven't heard him speaking either way about if he has a plan this year. So th- that's, that's the trick. It's really all about getting Sununu on board. I do think that if Sununu came on board, the Senate could get behind it. Yeah, no doubt about that. Obviously, it's a... Uh a, a real moneymaker for the state of Massachusetts, and I, I'm sure the other states uh, around uh, New England. So uh, we're the the last to get on board. I know you know many people do have issues with it, including uh, the governor himself. But I know it's it's doing uh, in, incredibly well from a tax perspective uh, in Massachusetts for sure. Yes, although I did see an interesting headline about how prices were going down (laughs) in Massachusetts. So that's a whole separate issue. It reminds me back in the gambling debate days when it seemed we every year we had a debate over whether there should be a casino in southern New Hampshire. There was concern about market saturation. So that's that's sort of a next level debate. I mean, we haven't even legalized it yet. I, I, you know, I feel like we it would be premature to start talking about that. But it is certainly true that marijuana is easily easily accessible to anybody in New Hampshire who is able to travel across state lines to Vermont, Maine, or Massachusetts. So there is a bit of a sense, I feel, that New Hampshire would be, is fighting a losing battle trying to keep it illegal. Yeah, uh, perhaps so. Uh, same way as you pointed out uh, aptly with uh, with the casino legislation, but uh, uh, that's that's going nowhere fast, and we we've lost the battle there for sure uh, to to Massachusetts and and other states as well. Speaking of Governor Sununu, he'll be getting uh, a lot of uh, national publicity. He'll be in the national spotlight uh, tomorrow night on uh, CNN at, at 10 o'clock when he'll be featured in the uh, on the network's uh, Being series, in this case, Being uh, John's, uh, Chris Sununu. And uh, it's with Dana Bash, their political director. And uh, does that, Anna, fuel more speculation that Chris Sununu may be throwing his hat in the uh, presidential ring uh, next time around? Oh, I think we'll all be speculating about that all the way through the next year. He has made clear that he hasn't entirely ruled it out. We see him on the national stage a lot. And he did sort of dip his toe into the water in these elections, trying to put forward his brand of Republicanism, you know, endorsing candidates who ultimately did not win the primaries. We're looking at Chuck Morris in the Senate race. We're looking at uh, Mayor Hansel in the second district congressional race. These were slightly more more moderate, less Trumpy Republicans. 
So him going on CNN, being part of this program, is just consistent with this thread we've seen all along. But I wouldn't expect a decision from him anytime soon. He's demonstrated, for example, with past U.S. Senate races, that he's willing to take his time, focus on his job as governor, and just only make a decision at the last minute when he has to make it. But he has been uh, very, very visible on on the national scene. There's no doubt about that. I mean, he, he shows up everywhere. And this uh, hour-long show tomorrow night at 10 on, on CNN is just uh, one example of that. But uh, he is... Uh, popping up uh, everywhere. You see him uh, uh, from time to time on Fox News, on Newsmax, and uh, on other uh, networks as well uh, that aren't as uh, Republican-friendly as those. Uh, but, uh, you know, he, he, Chris Sununu seems to be everywhere these days. I would definitely be interested on a personal level to, to see what the popularity numbers, the viewership numbers were on his segments on these channels because Governor Sununu is obviously very popular in New Hampshire, as demonstrated by his very decisive electoral victories for the past several election cycles. If that could translate to a national level, I don't know why the Republican Party wouldn't embrace him as a nominee. But then again, New Hampshire voters are their own breed. They're, they're independent more so than other voters in other states. So that, that would be the test. That would be the key. Because we, I can say that Governor Sununu has a strong personality he can be a bit of a contrarian. So I just don't know if that's something that is unique to New Hampshire and we kind of love that or, or if that would be appealing to Republican voters across the country. Yeah. And we certainly have seen uh, cases in our in our lifetime of a lot lesser known governors at the time uh, throwing their hats into the ring and and being successful, uh, Jimmy Carter and uh, Bill Clinton uh, come immediately to mind, and they, I think, at, at this stage anyway, were a lot lesser known than Chris Sununu. Or how about Pete Buttigieg on the Democratic side? Yeah, he wasn't even a governor; he right, was a, right, a, mayor a mayor and not yeah. even of a huge city. Uh, right? Yeah. No. Exactly. Exactly. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all plays out. But uh, President Biden and, and the DNC are pushing for. A first-in-the-nation primary for South Carolina after uh, New Hampshire, of course, has held that distinction for over 100 years. Uh, New Hampshire is still vowing to remain uh, first-in-the-nation. Where is this all going to wind up, Anna Brown? So the DNC has to finalize that vote, that decision on the primary calendar next year. So it's not a done deal. But here's what I just have to say about this conversation. If President Biden runs for re-election... The Democratic presidential primary would be a total snooze anyway. And as far as I know, there hasn't been a conversation on the Republican side about removing New Hampshire from being first in the nation. So I think no matter what happens, in 2024, New Hampshire is still going to have a very robust and exciting presidential primary because of the Republicans. Because I, I will say, even if Trump you know, continues on his campaign, it does seem... Like, there's interest in dethroning him on the Republican side. I could definitely see, you know, some very interesting candidate debates happening at the NHIOP, for example. So, yes, President Biden has clearly indicated that he has no interest in New Hampshire staying first in the nation. There are many other leading Democrats who are on board with that. But I, I wouldn't say it's a done deal until that final vote next year. Right. And, uh, of course, New Hampshire has a state law that, quote-unquote, requires us to hold the first-in-the-nation presidential primary. But 
Now, how much weight does that law really have? Well, this is the interesting thing that the listeners may not really grasp about presidential primaries or think about presidential primaries. They're kind of private events for the parties to decide who they want to nominate. The presidential primary did not exist at the founding of our nation, did not exist until the 1900s, really, and when finally voters themselves were allowed to vote for candidates. Before that, they would just vote for delegates to the parties, where the parties would once again just make these private decisions. So the Democratic Party right now has the power to just disregard any of New Hampshire's presidential primary votes. So by setting their schedule, they're saying, this is how we want you to do it, and if you don't do the way we want to do it, we can just ignore you, which in a rule situation means they can just they can uh, limit the impact of New Hampshire's votes on their ultimate caucus, their ultimate vote. It could also mean they penalize candidates. If candidates file in New Hampshire and, and participate in that early primary, they could have different penalties for those candidates going forward. So New Hampshire's law says we'll hold the primary, so we'll hold the primary. But the Democratic Party could basically punish candidates, punish us for participating in that primary. So there, there you go. Uh, we we could be punished by the by the DNC if we uh, go ahead and schedule it before uh, South Carolina. Uh, do you believe, uh, Anna, that uh, most of the, the the general public in in New Hampshire cares whether we're first in the nation or not? I think that the general public cares, but I don't think that it would decide how they vote the next election around. There are. Huge issues going on. The economy, inflation, abortion, what's going on with democracy and voting rights. I, might they be missed? <laughs> yes. But I don't think that it would, you know, really have an impact in the election. Who doesn't love, well, I mean, some people don't love all the, the signs and, and the ads and the rigmarole. But I know I personally have always loved the opportunity to meet candidates face to face. Anna, can you stay with us for one more segment? Sure. All right, hang on. Anna Brown is with us. She is the Director of Research and Analysis for Citizens Count, citizenscount.org, here on WKXL. We are presented by Northeast Delta Dental, and uh, we will be right back, so don't you dare touch that dial. Welcome back. Kale and Company live here on WKXL and presented by Northeast Delta Dental. Anna Brown with us, Director of Research and Analysis for Citizens Count, citizenscount.org. You can uh, find them on Facebook as well. And they, they have a, a great, great podcast that they produce, $100 plus mileage. What's the hottest topic on the, uh, on the podcast these days? Oh, honestly, we have incredible listenership on a podcast that came out, one of our first episodes, about tiny houses <laughs> and whether towns in New Hampshire should be allowed to, or be rather be required to allow tiny houses similar to how they'd offer accessory dwelling units. Tiny houses. And how, how what qualifies as a tiny house? Well, there, there is no legal definition in New Hampshire. Uh-uh. The, yeah, and, the, and the sort of those standards are emerging in private organizations as well. But the idea is, you know, if New Hampshire was to allow tiny houses, there's, you know, considerations about what would the plumbing requirements be and, and wiring, and if there's heating, what would go on with that. So I think in general, though, it's just a reflection of the fact that New Hampshire's housing is absurdly expensive, 
and everyone's looking for an alternative solution to that because there is no quick fix. So now tiny houses are not allowed in New Hampshire at the present time? Well, at this point, it would be it's basically up to localities because they're allowed to set a lot of these standards in terms of minimum square footage and, and where people could park if the house is on wheels, then technically it's not really a dwelling in the same sense as, as a house, right? So it's going to vary from place to place, and there's been debates and controversies in different towns. So, for example, over in Hampton Falls, there was a young woman at one time who had parked a tiny house on her parents' property, and then she was ordered to stop living in it, um, and, and that was within the town's rights at, at that point. So a lot of tiny house owners at this point basically try to just not raise the attention of town officials wherever they might be parking because it is so ambiguous about if the town is going to decide, you know, crack down and say no because it's, it's not that cookie-cutter housing unit. It doesn't necessarily fit into regulations. Hmm. It's an interesting topic, uh, no no doubt about it, and uh, we'll be following that uh, on your on your podcast, $100 plus mileage so uh, tune in for that well, do you have another one uh, coming up we will be doing episodes again in 2023 along with that legislative session i'll say this though we like to focus on lesser known bills that might not be getting a lot of debate and personally i just was a little sad to see there aren't that many crazy crazy bills i'm seeing proposed this come year. on usually, i know <laughs> usually with 400 legislators and a thousand bills you get some ideas that make you Maybe just chuckle a little bit or raise an eyebrow or wonder what the heck is that. And there really seems to be less of that this year than previous years. I think perhaps legislators are looking at that very close split yeah. and saying to themselves, eh, yeah, we, we, there's going to be gridlock. We don't have time for, for any of these, you know, interesting ideas. Yeah. So, yeah, there probably will be uh, gridlock. You know, it's almost hard to avoid with, uh, you know, the, the split uh, being what it is in the in the legislature, in the in the House anyway. Uh, so does that mean it's, it's going to be uh, tougher to get uh, a budget passed or, or easier? I think it will absolutely be tougher yeah. because we've seen even a few years ago that uh, a party has a majority and was unable to get them to agree to a budget in the House. The whole thing just fell in the lap of the Senate, which then had to put the budget together. And of course, there's a conference committee at the end where a select group of legislators from both bodies come together, craft the final budget. So it's not like it's just the Senate. It's not like the House has no say, but... I, I will be honest, that seems like a definite possibility this year, because if it's hard to even get everyone in your own party to get on board with a budget, you would literally need everyone in your party, plus probably to be safe, some people from the other party, to pass a budget. And yeah, that's just, that's just going to be real difficult unless, you know, unless it's just a really, 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 really bland budget. But I think in particular, school funding issues are going to be a hot debate, a very hot debate among legislators of both parties. Is that is that the, the biggest issue right now, uh, Anna, that New Hampshire faces? I think that that is a, a really, really big statement. I'd have to think if I would say it is the biggest. It is one of the biggest absolutely I can get behind saying that. I mean, it has been for 20-plus years. We continue to see lawsuits come forward that New Hampshire is not providing that adequate education to students in towns that have lower property values, since the state is so reliant on property taxes and local property taxes to fund our schools. But a secondary issue there that I found was really a very hot topic among candidates this year when I was researching them and surveying them before the election 
is this education freedom account program. It lets students take the per-pupil share of state education funding and spend it on private and homeschooling expenses. The program does have some limitations on family income at this point. Republicans want to maybe lift that limit, want to include more students in the program. Democrats are pointing out this program is already way over originally budgeted amounts. There's not over, enough oversight about where this money is going. So I think that that program is going to be a huge debate, too. Even though when you look at the overall scheme of school funding, it's a very tiny amount of that funding. But it's become a real flashpoint for legislators in particular because they see it as a battle between school choice and public school. And what kind of an impact is it having on public school budgets? Well, at this point, as I said, it's, it's, this is when you're looking at the overall issue of school funding, it's, it's very small amounts. I think the concern is more what could be this impact over time? Because New Hampshire already is facing very low public teacher salaries in a lot of cases. In, in, once again, in these property-poor communities, you have problems with lead pipes. You have problems with buildings that are just basically falling apart. So, as I said, the Education Freedom Account program, I think at this point, a lot of the harm is, is still kind of that philosophical harm, the idea that this is a trend and if we continue down this path. I don't think that if the, even if the state repeals the Education Freedom Account program, that's not like that would solve any of the, the equity problems in our schools. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it's a huge issue, obviously, and uh, we'll be getting much discussion uh, during the next uh, legislative session. Uh, uh, other things on, on the docket, we talked about, uh, you know, cannabis, marijuana, uh, school funding, uh, anything else that uh, comes to mind? Well, the parental rights bill that Republicans tried to pass last year is probably going to make a comeback. So for listeners who may not remember this was a bill that required schools to disclose various things to parents. And a major criticism was that it would force teachers to out at-risk LGBTQ plus teens to their parents, potentially putting those students at risk if a parent might, uh, you know, be really angry or, or not understand that their child or whatever might happen. So that bill did not pass last year, even though there was a Republican majority the Attorney General's office actually did come in and say, we have concerns about this bill. And then several prominent Republicans said, yeah, I can't, I can't support this bill. I think that it's not ready for prime time. This could definitely harm students. So Republicans do look to try to bring that back this year. The narrow majority in the House makes it incredibly difficult for them, I think. But you never know. We've seen in the past, in the past budget cycle, they put some very controversial priorities into the budget. Well, as I said, I don't think they do that this year just because they need to pass the budget. But it's not impossible. You know, if, if the Republicans really make this parental bill of rights their number one priority, we could see some interesting maneuvers to get it across the line. Yeah. yeah. And another issue where uh, New Hampshire seems to be uh, lagging behind is, is climate change. Any, anything coming up regarding that? There are a lot of bill requests related to all sorts of things, climate and energy related, because, of course, New Hampshire's high electricity bills are going to be a focus for legislators as well. This is another thing where you can't have a quick fix. You can't immediately get more natural gas coming into New Hampshire, just as you can't immediately install offshore wind or, or solar panels and get that up and running. 
But there are a few bills in particular related to setting climate goals for the state, uh, extending potentially the renewable portfolio standards so that the utilities are required to get more renewable energy over time in in terms of how they're providing electricity. So those debates will happen. I think that probably once again, there, you know, it's, it, it, you won't see any radical bills go through. That's, it just seems impossible that either party could get any radical priorities. I do think it's possible that there will be some sort of renewable energy funding or something like that. There are moderate Republicans who have indicated, for example, on Citizens Count surveys that they are concerned about climate change. So I could see a moderate enough bill could get, you know, the Democrats and then some Republicans on board. And then in the Senate, Deb Bradley, the Senate president, is definitely known as a moderate. And he is also focusing on energy costs for granite staters. So I think if there's an energy efficiency or renewable energy program that could help people lower their electricity bills, it's on the table. Does uh, Senator D'Alessandro have a casino gaming bill on, on the docket this year? <laughs> <laughs> Seems like an annual tradition, right? No, I haven't I haven't seen one yet. Other bills to maybe with charitable gaming, but not a casino. Not a casino. Anna Brown, as always, thank you so much uh, for being with us. Always great insight, and uh, uh, we will uh, have you on uh, if you consent to do it from time to time during the next uh, legislative session, and uh, we always appreciate having you. Thanks, Ken. All right. Anna Brown, Director of Research and Analysis for Citizens Count. CitizensCount.org. You can find them on uh, Facebook as well. And uh, Anna's always a great contributor to the program, and we appreciate that. We will continue after these words. It's Kale and Company live for a Thursday right here on WKXL and NHTalkRadio.com. We will be right back. Kale and Company live on a Thursday, December the 15th, which has been designated as International Tea Day. T-E-A, the kind you drink, not the kind you hit golf balls off of. Uh, And uh, our producer, Kat, told me that she's a big fan of tea. What What kind of tea do you like? I love... Earl Grey. Yeah, Earl, Earl Grey. Grey. Yeah. Yeah. Earl Grey yep. is my jam or English breakfast tea. Very nice. What about you? Uh, you know, uh, I am of uh, Scottish descent and tea is very big in Scotland. Not that I've ever been there, uh, <laughs> but uh, I had a grandmother and a grandfather that I, I lived with for a while that uh, that uh, were really into tea. And, and I, I like tea, although I probably don't drink it as much as I should, I, I guess. I, I I have, you know, it usually happens with me when I have some kind of a, a throat malady. If I have a sore throat, I will, I, I always think of tea. Put a little honey in, in a cup of tea and it'll be soothing to my throat. Or then sometimes I just get the urge to make a cup of tea to, to dunk a cookie into, you know. Uh, but I, I don't honestly drink it on a regular basis, and I, I'm not that sophisticated about it. I have been known to uh, steal some tea bags from time to time from hotel rooms uh, in various places and, and bring them home and then uh, and then use them. Uh, but uh, I, I don't honestly drink it. Now, what, what about uh, on a regular basis anyway? And it's nothing against tea. It's just, you know, boiling the water and 
putting a bag in the cup, and it's a very easy thing to do. But I, I, I usually lean toward coffee when it comes to uh, warm beverages. But uh, what, what about the, the teas they have, like, the, like a chai tea and that sort of thing? Oh, chai's really good. Yeah. I don't have it often, though. Lattes and chai make give me headaches. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's the caffeine content in it or what, <laughs> what's in it, but I try to not do that as much. I I, I think I've had maybe a, a chai tea uh, once or twice uh, in the past, and they've been good. I, they they've been good. Yeah. But they also tend to be rather expensive as well. So they are expensive, <laughs> and they're very flavorful. They're very good. They're very oh, they tasty. are. They are very good. They're very tasty. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, no problem, uh, no issue with the taste, but uh, just something I don't have uh, on a regular basis. One thing I probably have on uh, a too regular basis, if I can put it that way, are cupcakes. And this is Ooh. National Cupcake Day. So, so there you go. If, if you want an excuse to have a cupcake, yeah, you can tell people, well, after all, it is National Cupcake Day. I should have a cupcake on National Cupcake Day with a cup of tea. How about that? It's true. Tea I and should, cupcakes uh, I today. should bring some for the cast tonight uh, for our final dress. Now, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Final <laughs> dress rehearsal tonight uh, for your big show coming up uh, this weekend at the Colonial Theater in downtown Laconia. They're recently renovated, refurbished, uh, and, and uh, beautiful theater in downtown Laconia, which is... Uh, you know, so far since it has been reopened and it was not open for a long, long time. I mean, decades. And uh, finally, the, the money was there to refurbish it. And from all reports, and uh, Kat, you're an eyewitness, it, it is a beautiful theater uh, with uh, great acoustics, a replica of the Colonial Theater in Boston, if you've ever been there. And uh, and exciting uh, this weekend with uh, a great Christmas show coming up. <laughs> yes, absolutely. We have four shows coming four up shows. this weekend. One on Friday evening, two on Saturday, and one on Sunday. And then that's a wrap for shows for me this year. <laughs> uh, that's a Well, you know, we're getting pretty close to the end of the year uh, anyway, but uh, uh, yeah. they're doing so many things, and it's great to see, uh, uh, you know, that, that theater, which... Uh, you know, is the uh, the center of activity now in uh, downtown Laconia, a town, quite frankly, which needed uh, something like that very badly uh, in its in its community to to bring people together. I mean, uh, I don't think anything brings people together uh, like like two things. Uh, live theater is one of them, or live concerts, that sort of thing. Uh, you know, or sporting events. I think that those two things bring people together like nothing else. And, I agree. And uh, Laconia now has a, a beautiful theater. They're utilizing it very well. I know they have a, a one of my favorite bands of all time, Tower of Power, is coming there in uh, in November, in uh, February, and uh, all kinds of shows. I know they've had uh, the comedian Bob Marley there for uh, uh, a number of dates, and uh, he's sold the place out. I think four or five times, and it it just makes the the downtown area of Laconia so much more vibrant uh, than it has been in in recent years, and yeah, I think that theater will continue to grow. There's certainly the population for it. 
uh, in the Lakes region. And uh, it, it's very exciting, I think, for Laconia to have. Anyone coming to see this performance is going to be blown away. It is Broadway quality. It's incredible. Very immersive experience with 60 cast members and a lot of costume 60. changes. <laughs> wow. Wow. 60 cast members. Mm-hmm. Wow. And uh, Joel Mercier was in here who uh, has uh, written the music for this uh, for this show. And uh, he, he said the stage is relatively small, right? Um, it's So the stage in the Colonial is actually pretty big, but our set's huge. Yeah, so yeah. when you start oh, okay. to put the set in there, yeah, okay, yeah, you start to yeah. lose a little bit of space sure. for the performers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but to have everybody fit a little bit better, um, here's a little tea, a little sneak peek on tea day, I guess, right? Um, we put <laughs> a majority of the cast as choir members in the box seats, ah, all okay. in costume. Ah. So they'll be adding to the singing um, from the box seats, and then we have, you know, our performers on stage, our cast members on stage. So um, it's awesome. I just can't wait. And and they are also going to be singing, as I understand it, as people enter the theater before the show. Yes, there will be Christmas caroling for 30 minutes before the show begins, right on stage. So wow. it's going to be lovely. That That is terrific. Looking forward to it very much. And there are some tickets still available, but uh, get them now. Get them while you can. High school hockey. Started on uh, Wednesday night for the Concord High Crimson Tide, the three-time defending Division I champions in the state. And they uh, opened the season with a thrilling 2-1 victory over Wyndham in Salem last night. Tide scored the game-winning goal with 4.1 seconds left in regulation. The game winner was scored by A.J. Dow, set up by Brooks Craig and Jack Shoemaker. Conquer was down 1-0 heading into the third period last night until the Shoemaker scored the equalizer three minutes into the period. And then the Crimson Tide had to kill off a 5-on-3 Wyndham power play late in the third period before getting the dramatic game winner as time was running out in the third period. So a 2-1 nail-biter last night for the Concord High Crimson Tide, who will take on the Londonderry Lancers tomorrow night at 6.10 at the uh, Tritown Ice Arena in Hooksett. And then the Crimson Tide will open their home season on Saturday evening at the Everett Arena against the Trinity High Pioneers. Face-off time will be at 5.30. And uh, early next week, we're going to have a chance to uh, chat with the longtime uh, head coach of the Concord High Crimson Tide hockey team, Dunk Walsh. He'll be on the show uh, either next Monday or uh, Tuesday with us here on uh, Kale and Company. Elsewhere in boys hockey on Wednesday, it was Exeter over Bow, 5-3. John Stark, Hopkinton, Hillsborough, Deering uh, defeated Lebanon Stevens, Mount Royal. That's a that's a mouthful, huh? 5-3. So congratulations to... Uh, the John Stark Hopkinton Hillsborough Deering team on that victory. Belmont Guilford downed Laconia Winnesquam Interlakes 12 2. And in girls hockey, it was Concord blanking Berlin by a final score of 2 to nothing. So that brings you up to date on the local hockey scene. Interesting today in, in Washington, House Democrats today will call up legislation aimed at ending Puerto Rico's status as a U.S. territory and giving Puerto Rican uh, voters 
a say in whether the island becomes a U.S. state, an independent country, or some other form of non-territory status. So we'll be keeping an eye on that today in Washington, D.C. We thank you very much for listening to the program today. If you missed some of it or simply want to hear it again, uh, tune in tonight a little after 7 o'clock right here at WKXL, 1450 AM, 103.9 FM in the Capital Region, 101.9 FM in Manchester and beyond and streaming around the world and around the clock at nhtalkradio.com. Kale and Company Live, presented by Northeast Delta Dental. They have individual and family plans designed to fit your lifestyle. You can learn more and find your plan at nedelta.com or deltadentalcoversme.com. Tomorrow, Friday Fun Bunch will join us. Tom Raffio from Northeast Delta Dental and our resident flick chick, Kitty Ray. Right here, Kale and Company Live on WKXLNHTalkRadio.com. Have a great Thursday, everybody.